Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here at First Christian Church. For those who are guests, let me particularly say we're very glad you're with us and that we've had a chance to both worship together and to um, celebrate what God is doing in our midst. And if you're here in the West, welcome. If you're in the East, we're very glad you're with us as well. It's a pleasure to have each and everyone here at First Christian Church. And then also to those who are worshiping with us in Lovington, we're very glad that you're part of our life and ministry and uh, pleased for what God's doing in the midst of, your, of, if you will, the extension of our, both our congregations in that setting. So I'd invite you to take your Bible, please. Turn to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39 is towards the beginning of the Bible, and uh, you should be able to find it fairly easily. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some in the pew racks in front of you, and both here in the west and in Lovington, and in the east, there's some people moving around right now. Or perhaps you want to grab one on your smartphone, that'd be good. For guests, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm very glad that you're with us today. So um, I'm going to start with, with something that happened to me, oh, probably about 15 to, it's some time ago, put it this way. I was in a local restaurant, and a, um, an owner came to the table, and we started chatting, and he, he you know how, how the, the managers or the owners in the establishments, they come, want to know how you're doing, and... Uh, he said, how are you doing? Are you enjoying the food? And you know the drill. You get the conversation. You've been there. Um, and the, the conversation was kind of coming to close. And I could tell he recognized me. And I had never seen him before that I knew of. But he said, um, do, do I know you? What do you do? And where do you work? He's trying to place me because I wasn't where he was used to see me. And you know, I've learned that that can be a fascinating question. Sometimes it can lead to wonderful moments of pastoral ministry. Um, because the conversation can be very insightful. Um, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, you're a pastor, would you pray with me? Or would you pray, pray for my long, you know, far-removed third cousin, whatever the case may be. Um, invariably, they'll start asking me, um, do you, uh, well, they'll say something about, uh, well, I, I attend church or I don't attend church, and I've never, I don't usually ask them if they do, but they want to, it's like, I feel sometimes like they're, like they're being introduced to the principle or something like that. You know, well, if we're in trouble with God, then this is, I don't know, but nonetheless. I get it. I mean, if you meet somebody who's a plumber, you immediately go, I've got that leak under the sink, right? You meet a hairdresser, you go, I wonder what they think of my latest haircut. Or you know, meet a doctor and you go, well, doctor, can I tell you about this pain in my side? And, you know, and it may be an orthopedic guy, but you're telling him, you, it's, I'm a pastor. People identify and they have, but not this guy. Not this guy. When he said, do I know you? And I go, well, yeah, I'm one of the pastors at First Christian Church. His immediate response was, well, I'm an atheist. I didn't ask if you were, but again, now that I know that, I know that. And um, the Bible is full of too much violence, and he just turned away, and I didn't even have a chance to have a conversation. And um, I have to acknowledge, if you say the Bible has a lot of violence in it, you're absolutely correct. Because if you read the Bible, you have tale after tale of people damaging each other, individuals damaging individuals. You have nations damaging nations. There's war. There's betrayal, there's rape, there's murder, there's assault. Frankly, the Bible has a lot of ugly life in it, doesn't it? And I think it's a reasonable question. Why are those stories there in the scriptures? Why is that? Well, that's because the Bible is a record of humanity's interactions with God Almighty. It shows our need for divine intervention in the madness that comes to men and women and children. It's a spiritual history of how much we need God. 
and nothing shows that need more than the historical account of people's lives as they've messed up. We're gonna look at some drama today in scripture, some drama that's uh, difficult to look at. I need to tell you it's not PG right now. So for those of you who have children with you, be aware that I'm tempering my language for the sake of the children here amongst us today. Um, And adults, I'm asking you to listen carefully and listen between the lines. I'm not gonna say everything you want me to say today simply because you have to take some inferences of what I'm saying, all right? What we're doing today is we're finishing our final message as we look, have run through the book of Genesis very quickly. We start a new sermon series next week. It's called Tell Me More. We're joining with 17 other congregations around the community to do that. But for today, we're gonna wrap up our time in the book of Genesis. We started with a brief overview of human history and uh, the reason that we are in existence and why we have trouble. Creation, humanity, sin, the cosmos, all of that, big stuff. And then the big stuff narrowed down to one family. Starting in, in Genesis chapter 12, we began to see the story of Abraham, who had a son by the name of Isaac, who had a son by the name of Jacob, and then Jacob had a son, of, he had 12 sons, one of whom was a fellow by the name of Joseph. It's the family line that eventually leads to Jesus. They are all Jesus' forebearers, if you will. All of them lived in a place known as Canaan. Um, you could say where, sort of where modern-day Israel is today. And we're going to pick up the story today as the family is growing. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons, number 11, is a kid by the name of Joseph. And the, the, family's, the family's quite dysfunctional, to be honest. As a matter of fact, they're dysfunctional to the point where dad has acknowledged that he's got one favorite kid of all of his 12 sons. His favorite is number 11, Joseph. You would have thought that if if you're going to pick somebody favorite, surely you could figure that out before you got to number 11. It'd be my observation, but nonetheless. Maybe not the brightest guy in some ways. I don't know, but nonetheless, Joseph knows and the whole family knows that he's the favorite. And he would often taunt his 10 older brothers. You know how it would go, right? Dad loves me more than you. I'm his favorite. I'm the king of the castle. You guys are the dirty rascals. You know, it just goes on from there, right? And it wasn't long till the older boys, particularly as Joseph went into his teenage years, they were now men and they had had it up to here and they began to despise Joseph and the had it up to here grew to the point where one day in an act of vengeance, As a band of slave traders came along, making their way to Egypt, the older men, the older brothers said, we've got a deal for you. Let's make a deal. We'll trade some money for this kid. And they sold their brother's freedom. He was suddenly a a slave, pardon me, on his way to Egypt and sold there. And he ended up serving in one of Egypt's military commanders, a guy by the name of Potiphar. And while in Potiphar's house, it seemed, I mean, it, he was one of these guys that whatever he touched turned to gold. He just had this ability to kind of have some leadership skills and some management, just stuff he would do. And people would go, you're in charge and everything would come along. And so he gets to Potiphar's house and he ends up in a very sweet spot at first. But then it turns ugly. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 39, beginning in, chapter, in verse 6, Okay. So Potiphar, 
this is the military commander, now has this slave by the name of Joseph, who's doing very well. He's leading the household. Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care, and with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. I think his middle name was Wayne, and after a while... <laughs> that wasn't a funny line. That was true. <laughs> wasn't supposed to be. Now I'm offended, but nonetheless. Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he said, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is, is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has held nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thin, thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her, even be with her. It's sexual assault. It's power. She has the power, he doesn't. Verse 11, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak, now it's turned physical, and said, come to bed with me, but he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house, now she's angry. She's been turned down. Now she wants vengeance. She called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home, and then she told this story. This Hebrew slave you brought to us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. We'll come back to that story in just a moment. But for now, let me summarize what happened next. Joseph did go to prison, falsely accused, erroneously convicted. He was there for a number of years. However, once again, while he was in prison, everything he touched seemed to turn to gold, and he was eventually released. And when he was released, someone said to the Pharaoh, hey, this kid that's now come out of prison is now a grown man. He's really got some leadership abilities. You should have him in your house. And it's not long before he moves up the leadership ladder in the Pharaoh's house, and he became the vizier of Egypt, the number two leader in the nation, right under Pharaoh. And while in that role, he had some wise ideas. He had made some wise strategic moves. He began to say to the farmers of Egypt, you know, we should be stockpiling grain in the years that are really good, because where we live, somewhere along the line, a drought is gonna come along, and sure enough, a drought did come along and impacted the whole region, not only Egypt, but all the nations around them. But with Joseph's wise leadership, Egypt was the only nation prepared to face the drought. And with that, as the food in the other nations began to be eaten, those other nations soon began to come to Egypt and to Joseph personally to say, we need food. By then, he was no longer known as Joseph. He had a new Egyptian name. Zephenath Panea. He no longer looked like a Jewish slave. Now he's the number two guy in the country. He's dressing like a royal regal, like a government official. And as vizier, the people who knew him from years early would not have ever recognized him. He's dealing with people that come from other countries. And one day a group of 
guys come from Canaan. They're hoping to buy grain. They're suffering under the same drought as everyone else, and guess who they were? They were none other than Joseph's brothers, the men who had sold him into slavery. Now the tables are turned. Those who sold Joseph into slavery are now asking Joseph, Egypt's vizier, for help, and they needed food. And Joseph immediately recognized his brothers, but because the way he dressed, the language he spoke by then, his new name, they didn't recognize him. To make a long story short, after lots of back and forth, he eventually identified himself, and you can imagine the brothers' terror when they realized that the boy who they'd sold into slavery, and I, I, if I was them, they would have assumed that he was dead from labor. He was now the man who had the power of life and death in his hands, and I wonder if they thought, we're dead men walking. We're dead men working, walking for sure because our days have to be numbered. Because of what we did to him years ago, our days are numbered. And in fact, the number is probably zero. Today, we will probably not live to see the sunset. But then look at the account of when he revealed himself to the men. We read this. It's going to be on the screen. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? His brothers were not able to answer him because they're terrified at his presence. And then he says to his brothers, come close to me. And so they come close and they go, it really is him. And he says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Wow. No vengeance back? Can see a big picture? As a matter of fact, he could see the big picture. The, the brothers never really realized, and they really, every day they're looking over their shoulders. As a matter of fact, after Jacob, their father, died, look in, in uh, chapter 50, if you will. Grab your Bible. Look in chapter 50 in verse 15. After Jacob dies, the brothers think, we're, now we're really toast. He was just taking care of us while dad was alive. But in verse 15 of chapter 50, we read this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? This is years later. They're still looking over their shoulder thinking, we're, we're toast. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. They're trying to butter, you know, grease the skids as they go to him and say, uh, this is what you ought to say to Joseph. Ask, I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. And he responds, no, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You intended evil, he says, and God turned it to good. That statement that Joseph makes where you intended evil, but God meant it for good, it reminds us of God's best intent for each of us, God's best intent for you and God's best intent for me at all times. It's, it's great theology, frankly. It's great theology, and it's a fine biblical example of God's, God's best plan working through the muck of life working through the dysfunction of a family, 
working through the crimes that were committed against innocent parties and working through famine and doubts and the horrid treatment of one person to another. In the midst of all that sort of stuff that Joseph faced, in the midst of all the stuff that you face, God works. You've faced matters in the past. Friend, God was using them for your good. You go, how? Well, that's probably yet to be decided. Or perhaps you've you've had to take on a new middle name this past week or in this past year and your middle name is struggle. It's It's in the middle of all you do at present, you struggle. Don't you think Joseph had that thought from time to time over many, many years in prison? Many, many years as a slave? In the middle of all you do right now, in the middle of the struggle, be assured of this. God will turn it to good. That's one message coming from Joseph's life. You should also note that Joseph's life lived as, as a, he, he lived the life of a slave while in Egypt. And there are lessons there that if we had time to today, I'd like to unpack with you about the brutality of people against people both then and now. May I suggest that people who live in the freedom of this nation right now, we should remember there are some 40 million people today who are enslaved in modern day slavery. And the records and the data shows that one in every four of them is a child. 10 million children in slavery today. And when we argue over stuff, I sometimes wonder, have we lost sight of the real issues of the world? So Joseph's story tells us about good coming from evil. It speaks to the issue of slavery It also details the events of Genesis 39, the passage we just read a few minutes ago, where after he is sold into slavery and he is a great manager and leader, he's also put in charge of the house of this military commander. The man's name is Potiphar. And remember, Potiphar's wife finds the young fellow as well. How can we put it? Attractive, alluring. As I read to you in verse 6, it says the Bible states that Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph. It goes on to say that she wanted sexual favors. This woman who held power, this woman who was the stronger one in the relationship, she used that power to demand sexual attention. The powerful expected the non-powerful to give control of his own body. It's fascinating to me how scripture always speaks to the issues of contemporary culture. Is anyone going, whoa, in light of what we've seen this past week? This week, the story of mess has been played out on the television. For example, this week, America's dad, Bill Cosby. I have a book in my library on fatherhood by Bill Cosby. Some of you may have read that. That man was sent to prison at 81 years of age for a sexual assault conviction where he, as the powerful man, demanded sex through drugging his victim. And in that case, and in those cases, Cosby's victims couldn't run like Joseph did because they were immobile. You know, the Me Too movement of the last few months has focused on how people of power, usually men, but not always, It's focused on people, how people of power have used their power with evil sexual intent. Time magazine in June, I still have a copy of it sitting in my file. 
It counted 414 men of high-profile, high-profile executives, who've run afoul of, in their businesses, if you will, through sexual misconduct in their personal charges, or even at work. 414 men of very high power, high profile. 312 of them are no longer working in those places where they worked before. Their careers are in tatters. And I think some of us would like to say right, rightfully so, right? We would. And that was fine. We're sort of like, okay, that's, that's, that's in the corporate world. That's in the, that's in the entertainment business. But then, this week, we've had a, more strug a struggle that probably has greater impact, right? Because a few months ago, Judge Kavanaugh was selected to be the next Supreme Court Justice. And uh, I've known all along for a number of weeks that I was going to be responsible for taking care of Joseph's story. I mean, that was decided months ago. That Wayne, when we get to the end of Genesis, that's your weekend, you're preaching, and you're to preach on Joseph. And I really want to spend a lot of time on how evil can be turned to good until the events of this week popped up. And you go, okay, I cannot just pass this on by. As the pastor of this church, we have to figure out what does this mean. The nation has been fixated on the Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination. It would appear that up until the last 10 days or so, last two weeks, whatever, I don't know the timeline particularly, but Kavanaugh's appointment appeared to be a win for the Republicans given their majority in Congress. But then you know that Christine Ford, a university professor from California, she derailed the Republicans' plans with a last-minute interruption. She claimed that Kavanaugh assaulted her at a high school party when they were teenagers when she was 15 and he was 17. The larger, the more powerful, trying to do something to the younger and the less powerful. Wow. Think about that in light of what we see in Genesis chapter 9 where Potiphar's wife sexually assaults a young boy or a young man, the first injustice. And then in an act of vengeance, the one falsely accused Joseph of a similar crime. And he went to prison, falsely accused, erroneously convicted, and that was justice number two, injustice, pardon me, number two. Joseph, the victim, was victimized twice. Some would say, well, Kavanaugh is Joseph. Here's a man with a promising career. And the potential of a false claim of sexual assault is going to derail his career. It might send him to prison for years. An innocent man can send us to a crime he didn't commit. I don't know if that's the case or not. Here's what I do know. That Joseph's story is a biblical example of the Kavanaugh hearings. Where you have sexual assault and you have allegations and you don't know who to believe. While the details are all turned around. And I want you to do too many parallels between Joseph and the wife and all that mess. Don't say, well, this is this character or this character. Don't do that. But while all those details moved around and the genders are different, all the story's elements are familiar, aren't they? See, I'm a lot unclear about a lot of things regarding the alleged incident between Professor Ford and Judge Kavanaugh. I don't know if the incident took place. I would say this, if it did... If it did, should the actions of a 17-year-old boy stain his career some 35 years later? Should it? Well, think about it this way. If a 17-year-old boy committed murder, then that crime would follow him all the days of his life, and we'd say legitimately so. Is there a difference between murder and sexual assault? Of course there is. 
but I'm unclear how to, if you will, to parse the difference in the life of Supreme Court judges. I'm, I'm, I don't know, where's the diff balance there? I suspect we want a higher standard for those sitting on the bench. I'm unclear about the political motives of this story arriving in the public light at the height of Kavanaugh's career just at the last moment. Why didn't this come up years ago? It's uncanny to me. It's weird. It feels deliberate on the part of those who were opposed to the judge's personal views, and they were opposed long before his nomination. I mean, I'm unclear that if innocent, that this man's reputation will ever be the same. There'll always be an asterisk now beside his name or any judgments from now on. I'm definitely unclear about how his wife and children are managing this allegation. And let me say it again, I'm unclear about whether the incident took place. I'm inclined, it's really quiet in here. I'm inclined to suspect that something occurred. Here's why. We know alcohol was involved. And alcohol-fueled parties for teenagers where everyone, both the boys and girls, are drinking with the goal of getting drunk to the point of being blind drunk. That sort of party is a recipe for chaos and poor decisions. Mixing alcohol in teens is a recipe for trouble. Across the board. And I can't quite put my finger on why a well-established professor would submit herself to this public scrutiny, to the hate, and to the ridicule of political enemies for the sake of what others would say was a consensual teenage kiss. Something happened to the professor beyond a kiss. Forced? I don't know. Kavanaugh's involvement? I don't know. Something is there, and I suspect only two people really know for certain what took place, if it did at all. See, <laughs> sometimes being a preacher is really hard, guys. Sometimes you have to say hard things and you have to say, Scripture speaks to contemporary issues. Joseph's problem is occurring on our television screens and on our phones. And it, it, it begs the question, who do you believe when one person alleges sexual assault and the other denies the allegations? For Joseph, it went very badly. People believed the wrong story, and it's not my role as pastor to choose one story over another, Kavanaugh over Ford. That's the role of the Judiciary Committee. But here's my role. My role as the pastor of this church is to look for lessons, helping our nation, if you will, that's represented in these rooms. My job is to help our nation choose more quiet voices, and in the midst of the more quiet voices, can we make better choices for our future? for our future. See, friends, the Me Too movement and the struggles of Kavanaugh and Ford, they're not coming to us in a blind vacuum. Sexual assault is not a new phenomenon. History, both biblical and others, has countless examples of real assault, not just alleged. Our own era has plenty of examples of one individual damaging another. Man to woman, man to man, woman to man, woman to woman, and tragically, above all, adult to child. There are countless stories of horrific injustice moving from one person to another. Our sexuality has run amok, and whether or not the allegations of Ka against Kavanaugh are true, I'm convinced of this, that God's great gift of sex is often misused and abused, often with great terror. And that's my point today in bringing this passage of scripture today, the misuse of sex. 
Focus on that today, friends. I know there's going to be lots of conversation at lunch today. But focus on this. Instead, don't focus on whether or not I've adequately described your personal viewpoint of the Kavanaugh and Ford situation. There are, as many, there are as many different viewpoints as there are people. I've not particularly adhered to either a Republican nor a Democratic line in this matter, but I'm aware there's a real danger in our nation of one group being pitted against another. And in the argument, we've lost sight of the real tragedy that can take place in thousands of lives. Our sexual lives can be used for wonder and beauty. Our sexuality, right, can be used for wonder or beauty, or it can be used for violence and the misuse of authority and power. And while there are plenty of examples of sexual assault, if you will, where women are at fault, like what we see here in Genesis 39, we also know there is a preponderance of examples of usually men against women or men against men or men against children. And for those of us who are men, what does that say to us about our maleness? And by the way, I must address anyone here who has been a victim in the past or is presently a victim. Come to us. We'll help. We'll help extract you. We'll help allow the Spirit of God to wash over you and heal. Men, women, children, whether it happened years ago or you're facing it right now, we want to help. And quietly, may I also say, say if this very dark sin is the case where you're not the victim but you're the perpetrator, we want to help you too. Because this is what I believe. I believe that the God of wholeness describes these horrific things in Scripture so we will learn and say, okay, then the God of wholeness can also, as healing comes to that, then healing can come to our lives. And as I say that, we must admit that sexual assault is not just outside the church. It's not just in Washington, D.C. It's not just the Me Too movement out there. Sadly, the past few months have reminded us again that Christians, we have our own struggles. Prominent pastors from very large congregations have lost their pulpits in just the last two or three weeks because of unrighteous behavior. Two megachurch pastors have been removed from well-known pulpits, one in Milwaukee and one in Seattle in just the last two weeks. And then you've got to take into account the recent report from Pennsylvania. I'm just horrid. I, I, you know, the, it details the sexual assaults of 300 priests, 300 priests, against more than a 1,000 children. It causes me to reel in dismay and distress. A 1,000 children. And we can't simply say, well, that's the Roman Catholics. Can't say that. Those are our brothers and sisters. And let's be careful to acknowledge that Protestant churches, we have our own sexual predators and our own misdeeds. So before any Christian starts agreeing with Professor Ford, or before any Christian starts defending Judge Kavanaugh, can we stay, take a step back and make certain that we look at our own house, the church, capital C, and our own congregation? How are we managing our sexuality and the power that each of us have? Let's start there. Liberty University professor Karen Swallow has suggested a response to the present national, national mess and I think she draws it to a very nice statement. She says, I don't expect we'll ever know the truth about what did or did not happen regarding Kavanaugh and Ford. But as an evangelical Christian, I'm convinced Dante himself could not have devised a more fitting circle of health for my faith community than the one in which we find ourselves. 
being destroyed from the inside out by the sexual sin we spent decades pointing out everywhere but in our own house. Before we go pontificating about Washington, D.C., how are we managing it here? My prayer. God help our nation, please. God help our church, capital C. God watch over our congregation and God protect the innocent, particularly the children. Please the children, God. Would you stand with me please in all three rooms? I want to pray with you, um, and as we do so, um, at the end of prayer, it's going to be a moment where you could step forward and have prayer with somebody, and uh, you go, I don't know if I want to step forward after that heaviness, Wayne, because people are going to think, well, let's get past that. Let's acknowledge that there are going to be people who step forward who say, my cousin three times removed has a bad little toe. All right? We're going to pray about that. There are situations at work that need some prayer. There are places of health that need prayer. There are places of financial matters in your house. You're trying to figure out what house to buy. Those sorts of things. We want to pray about that. But I want to say, friends, if this impacts you, we want to pray about that as well. If you're presently in a setting where you go, I'm, I'm a victim. I need help. Or I was a victim. I need help. We'd like to pray with you. If you say, my life is way out of control. And I am that 17-year-old kid run amok, except I'm 47. What, whatever the case, we'd like to pray with you. You know, it was probably in the late 1990s. Uh, we did a Sunday here uh, where, where I addressed this issue. So it's almost 20 years ago now. And um, after the service, I was standing out under the portico. And a lady who was in her mid-80s, probably 84, 85 years of age, Real tiny lady. She's since passed away. Longtime member of our church. Longtime member of our church. She's walking out the door and she, I took her hand and she pulled me down to her ear so that my ear would be at her mouth. And what she said to me, she said, Pastor, whispering, my dad used to do that to me all the time. And you're the first person I've ever told. We got her some help, we, pr pr we prayed, and she died with that resolved, a victim. Friends, <laughs> the mess of all of this, God can take that evil and find a way to turn it good to good. Let's pray together. Father, heal us. Heal our land. We are a nation at odds with one another. And we have really loud voices and we're strident and it's, <laughs> it doesn't feel very healthy or helpful. Help us as followers of Jesus Christ today to model pure lives. And Lord, remove us from the muck and bring healing to us, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name.